Hi, Kirby. Hi, Sarah. Welcome, Welcome to, to Los Angeles. Angeles. Welcome, Glamgelinos. We hope you stay a while. Cute. That's cute. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So, for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Glams, Sarah is. She's not on vacation. She's working, but she's in Paris. So it's kind of like a vacation. 36 hours in Paris. So send Sarah your love. She will still be there by the time you hear this episode. So today I have a very special guest because we are getting into a lot of news and I get a lot of my news from this prolific journalist. She is the journalist journalist. This is what I like to say about Lexi, which I'm blowing her grand intro by naming her already. But any beauty editor, any journalist in general, just like Danessa Myricks is the makeup artist, makeup artist Lexi is the beauty journalist, journalist. We love her stories. She's a friend of the pod. She's been on the pod before. We've talked about her work extensively here. But for those of you who may not be familiar, she's a, well, she's actually not a freelance reporter anymore. I've since learned she's Glossy's West Coast correspondent. Hallelujah. Glossy's lucky to have her. But Lexi co-created, she co-produced and hosted Refinery29's docuseries Shady. This series was one of my all-time favorite pieces of content to ever live on the internet. It examined the culture, commerce, and controversy behind the beauty and wellness industries. The stuff that Lexi found out, chef's kiss, truly mesmerizing and very, very important. She won a Webby Award for her investigation into child labor in rural India tied to American makeup companies. So she's doing really important work and really kind of blowing the lid off of a lot of things that maybe you as a listener may not be privy to. Before that, she was the founding editor of Birdie.com, who we reference on this podcast a lot. She was on the original editorial team of Violet Gray, and now she is Glossy's West Coast correspondent. We could not be happier to have her. Lexi, there you are. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing so well. Thank you. What, what a nice intro. Wow. Oh, my gosh. You know that Sarah and I both adore you and we love your work. We're just always so impressed with everything you're doing. And I, I'm not just saying this because you're here, but every story opens my eyes to things that I'm not even thinking about or I didn't even realize. So that's why I'm thrilled to have you here to talk to the glams and, and fill them in on a few stories that you've had come out over the past month that are really fascinating. Thank you. Of course. I wanted to start with the FDA delaying MOCRA enforcement. This has been a big topic of conversation. Sarah and I covered this a little bit ago when the news was out that they were going to start enforcing these standards. But for anybody that's not familiar, what is MOCRA and, and why is it important or why is it controversial? Sure. So MOCRA is pretty exciting. It stands for the Modernization of Cosmetics Regulation Act of 2022. And President Biden signed it into law last year. I think that this is sort of the compounding of a lot of different advocates who, you know, you see the beauty founders in a certain sector of the industry in Washington, you know, 
lobbying for safer products and better regulation. You see a lot of members of Congress lobbying as well and, and really trying to trying to get these standards changed. So MOCRA is huge. It's the biggest move to regulate the beauty industry in more than 80 years. Mm-hmm. And it gives the FDA a lot of new visibility into what's in our beauty products and where they are manufactured. Those are the two big things. It also gives new authority to the FDA to issue mandatory product recalls, which we've all seen a lot of beauty brands that have had really weird press and, you know, people saying their hair's falling out and they're having reactions to things. And this is going to give the FDA power to be like, you guys got to pull those products. It also gives new authority into making brands have record keeping as to their adverse reactions. And they have to tell the FDA when customers complain about a product, giving them a bad reaction. It's going to put ingredient labeling onto professional products. It's going to do a lot. And it goes into effect at the end of next month. Okay. So this is really interesting to me because I feel like that should just be a baseline. Like if somebody's having an adverse reaction to something, it should be documented somewhere in some form or fashion, right? But Then I also think about the innovation that we've seen over the years through somebody making products in their kitchen. Like, I mean, I think about Wendy Zomner of Urban Decay making those grunge eyeshadows in her little beach apartment back in the 90s. You know, that brand would not exist without somebody cooking something up in the kitchen. And a lot of brands, stories that have like these legacy brands, they exist to this day because of that. So in your story... I was reading a lot of brands are concerned, like, what does this mean for these smaller brands? Where does the innovation go? In your reporting, did you find that that was a huge concern or were you able to kind of mitigate some of those concerns based on other parts of Mokra? Yeah, I think that Mokra has been reported on a lot over the last year. So I think that most brands are sort of preparing and getting ready. And a lot of the brands that I spoke to, and I think like the general feeling out there is that most brands are pretty happy there's going to be some regulation, especially as the clean beauty industry continues to expand and that becomes more table stakes. You know, I think most brands are happy about it, but there was something that people were upset about. And that is sort of the ambiguity and the lack of clarity about what a lot of the things actually mean within Mm. some of the guidances that the FDA put out. So the first sort of order of compliance is that brands are supposed to log on to this portal and they're supposed to upload all of the products that they manufacture, all of the ingredients and where they manufacture. And that doesn't seem too complicated, but the FDA came out last week and basically said that they were delaying this and they're they're not prepared. They're not ready to take on all this information yet, but they want all the brands to continue to compile all this information. And so brands just started freaking out. They're like, we don't know what to do. We don't want to get into legal trouble. We want to stay above board, but this is all very complicated. And of course, like it was going to be complicated. It's the first big legislation in 80 years. But one of the big sticking points, and I think this is kind of going back to your question, which is how will this impact innovation and the founders who are in their kitchen making formulas that we're all going to eventually love. And it all kind of comes down to one sticking point. And that is that the FDA had an exemption. Mocha exempts businesses with less than 1 million in gross annual sales for the past three years from Mm. facility registration and from the good manufacturing practices that they put out. 
Now, this is sort of what saves innovation in a way because it allows brands that are small and don't necessarily have the resources from having to comply with all this stuff. But and I swear I'm getting to the good part. There was one sticking point that said that these brands are exempt unless they make products that regularly come into contact with the mucous membrane of the eye under customary or usual conditions of use. So everyone's like, what does that mean? Is an eyeshadow come into contact with the mucous membrane of my eye? Like, will an eyeliner do that? What about bronzer that I'm putting into the crease of my eye? What about makeup remover that I'm using to take it all off? Mm. So the FDA had stayed quiet on this. And a lot of people had been talking about it, trying to figure it out because it's really going to change the process for a lot of these smaller brands. Well, the FDA actually emailed us at Glossy on Thursday and let us know that they do indeed consider any product, including mascara, eyeliner, eye makeup remover, eyeshadow, lash glue, anything that can come into contact with your eye, they consider not exempt. And so that means that all of these brands that are potentially making formulas in their kitchen or manufacturing overseas in random facilities that aren't FDA approved and they're getting very small orders. If you're selling on a third-party site because you're making things at a very small factory that's not really FDA compliant, that unfortunately, those days are over. So kind of takes away, I guess, a bit of the innovation, right? but it also, in theory, is making things a lot safer. So that's sort of where they landed. I mean, that is crazy. I just saw that update in the story, which... Obviously, a bronzer is not necessarily marketed to be used on the eye, but I do think that this is going to be interesting to see because so many consumers now want these multifunctional, multi-use products. And we have influencers on places like TikTok going, oh, I use this on my eyelid, this bronzer. I use self-tanner on my eyelid for a natural contour, like things like that. And so I feel like I see brands taking things like that and using them in their social media to be like, yeah, you could use it here. You could use it here. But now with this in play, I feel like they're going to have to be sticklers <laughs> for exactly what this is intended for. Because then somebody could be like, well, on your Instagram, you said use it as this thing. And now I have like whatever eye infection or whatever. You know what I mean? I mean, I guess that's standard anyways, but I feel like now with this particular legislation, people are going to be focused a lot more on it. Yeah. And I think it's really important. Like I like to watch all of these like weird stories and kind of like uh, scary stories unfold in the news. I don't know why, but I don't know if you've been following all of the eye drop stuff that's been happening, yeah. but oh my gosh. So 26 over-the-counter eye drops that were sold at big box stores. Like these are the stores that you trust that you, you know, you go into all the time. They were pulled from shelves because they realized that they were contaminated due to bad manufacturing processes. And at the last check I had last week, and I linked in the story, there have been four deaths and 14 cases of blindness associated with these contaminated eye drops that, you know, you can just like buy in like a store. Right. And when you dig a little bit deeper into different things that have happened in the beauty world, it's like, I won't name the brands here, but a big brand that I call out in the article, they ended up having a class action lawsuit in 2021, where they had to pay out $1.9 million because they had pigments in an eyeshadow that weren't actually allowed to be near the eye. And then of course you see a lot of other brands named in similar filing. So I do think that this will be a, it'll be a tightening up of how eye products are sold here. 
And Lexi, we've actually talked about that. It was Huda Beauty that had that class action. We've talked about that at length on the pod. And it's actually interesting, like House Labs, when they came out with their paints, they had a very specific grouping of four that was very clear on this four website not to be used on the eyes because of the pigments within them. But it was interesting because everything else in that specific line was made for basically painting your entire face. So, yeah, I think we're going to see at least like a lot more blatant messaging around this stuff, too. And maybe brands won't want to take a chance. Yeah. One of the themes of my story is that I talked to a contract manufacturer in Indiana, and she was sort of driving a lot of the story because she didn't know what to do. She was like, I don't sell a ton of eye products. It's not one of our big SKUs. And I'm really, really scared to continue to manufacture eye products in my factory because if I hit any kind of regulatory issue, it could cripple my entire business. And so I actually talked to her at the end of last week and she's not going to be doing any eye products anymore. She's just going to focus on complexion product, lip products, eyebrow products, stuff like that. And yeah, it is scary. It's scary. So I guess, where do we go from here? Like, what do you think we will see as a consumer now that this legislation is like, you know, coming up and we're starting to see brands abide by this? Do you think that we'll see less smaller indie brands making eye products and it'll be more of these giant conglomerates instead? Like there will be just less eye products in general? Yeah, I think so. I think that there'll be less eye products on the market. The indie brands that are selling a lot of eye products could potentially have to make big changes. And of course, some of them I'm sure are already very much above board and are going to be just fine. I've talked to some brands that are like, this doesn't really change anything for us. Like we're operating at the highest of standards. And so I think that some brands will eventually kind of be pulled from the marketplace. And then maybe there'll be an increase in like private labeling where you see more brands going to the same factories and getting, you know, their products made with the bigger factories. Okay, so that's a great segue into your next story that just came out on Monday today when we are recording this. And it's a story about owning product formulas. And the headline is why owning product formulas is a secret to brand growth, funding and a successful exit strategy in beauty. And you interviewed some of my favorite people for this, including Angela Caglia and Jamie Greenberg about owning a formula. Now, Again, I'm not in the weeds, so I didn't even realize this. I would think if you're creating a formula, naturally you would just own it, but that's not the case. No. And, you know, I had no idea about this either. I was actually sitting at Glossy had a dinner maybe like two or three weeks ago. And I was sitting next to Shantae Lundy, who owns Black Girl Sunscreen. Yeah. I was like, yeah, you know, like what's new? What's like, what are you, what's on your radar right now? And she's like, I'm really trying to own all of my formulas and kind of like move forward. And that's sort of like part of my business. And I was like, I had the same reaction as you, Kirby. I was like, you don't like what? (laughs) I have no idea. You know, if you go into a lab and make a formula, like how is that not your formula? But I um, really appreciated the conversation. And then I ended up digging around some more and I found this is a huge issue. And it's almost like a secret where the brands that are really, really positioned well to make a big lucrative exit which I think is like why a lot of people go into the beauty industry. You know, they want to have monetary success, of course. I mean, listen, everybody has their different motivations, but I think a lot of people want to sell. 
And so the secret, I think, is you have to own your formulas in order to have a stronger IP to eventually sell. And Angela Caglia, I had a great call with her last week and and she was like, oh yeah, the only reason to own your formulas is if you want to sell. And she said that everyone that she talks to knows this because it's like, we're all talking to private equity. That's what she said. And she said that the first question they ask, if you're trying to find funding for your brand is, well, do you own your formulas? Do you own your IP? Which I thought was so fascinating. But basically, if you just walk into a contract manufacturer and you say, you know, I want to create a really beautiful blush you'll probably go through a process where they encourage you to private label. And that is basically taking a formula that they already have, that they already own, that they've already tested, they've already done the regulatory on it. They know it's effective. They know it's good. They know it sells because other brands sell it. And then you can customize it in a way you want to add an ingredient or you want to pick the right color, you know, for your, your customer or whatever it is that you want to do. You want to put it in different packaging, but That's kind of what I realized is why a lot of the formulas on the market are so similar. (laughs) And Jamie Greenberg was like, yeah, it's a secret. Everybody knows that most makeup is made in a factory in New Jersey. (laughs) And it's all kind of made by the same factory. So I learned in this story that to own your formulas, it's a lot more work. A lot of the brands I spoke to go to a private independent chemist and they have them make the brand for, for a fee. And then they go to a lab and have it mass produced to try to scale it up. But yeah, it's a, it's a funny insider tip. So I thought that was interesting. So I'm wondering, and I have asked multiple people this, but it's hard because they're brand founders. And so they don't want to say anything. And obviously I don't want you to like put anybody on the spot, but is there a way for us to not figure out, but like, oh, this is probably private labeled. Like, are there any red flags, like indicating factors? Is it like, do they turn around product really quickly, consistently? It is a speed thing. So what I learned talking to a contract manufacturer is that if you go to a manufacturer and you want a product in like 30 days, in like 45 days, because you're trying to execute against a trend or you're trying to get something into a store really fast, or maybe you're in a Sephora or one of the big stores that really needs freshness in the product roundups, like every couple months, you're most likely going to be private labeling at least some of it because it takes years to bring a product to market if you don't private label it. Because It has to go through all the stability testing. It has to go through all of the formulation. It has to go through regulatory. It has to go through all of these things that just take time. So a lot of the really fast products that to market, I think that's what we're seeing. And I think one good example of that right now is like the glossy oil that everybody's loving right now. And all of a sudden there's like a bunch of them on the market. And I feel like that has to be a private label thing because how did they come out so fast? But I, I mean, I don't know. Right. Maybe the FDA stuff will allow us to see where people are manufacturing manufacturing because, and maybe that's above my head as a reporter. I don't think there's like a way to find out where someone's manufacturing yet, but there might be. Okay. Not to say that you guys should be buying our merch, which you definitely should. But if you have bought our merch, you probably know it's pretty easy. Couldn't be easier. Truly. And that is because we use Shopify and we love Shopify because it makes it easy to purchase products, not just sell them, but as somebody who often buys things online. I love that when I log on somewhere, maybe skims or something, you 
go to check out and it's like, boop, all my stuff's in there. No need to pull out my credit card or my wallet. Just fill out the little code that comes to you and then you're on your way. And for entrepreneurs out there, Shopify couldn't make it easier for you to sell your stuff. It makes it easy to accept payments, you manage your orders, you're building the relationships with your customers. It literally has everything you need to sell in person, but also everything you need to sell online. If you're ever wondering ease of use, like why it's so easy for you to check out certain places, it's likely because it is a Shopify website and it helps you to drive store traffic with plug and play tools built for marketing campaigns. We probably could do a little bit more of that to be honest. So uh, here's your PSA to go buy some Los Angeles merch. There's literally Shopify built in plugins for Instagram. Wow. Did you know that? That's amazing. We're not doing enough. We're living in the future. We, we're, we have all of this at our service and we are not utilizing it. So sorry, Shopify. But now that they are proud sponsors of Los Angeles, we will be integrating that into our merch situation. Yes, we will. If you are interested in checking out Shopify, we've got a little deal for you. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash Los Angeles. That's all lowercase. So just go to shopify.com slash Los Angeles to take your retail business to the next level today. That is shopify.com slash Los Angeles. I've tried. I've tried to figure this out. I mean, you would be better at it than I would. Because again, I feel like that's above my pay grade to like understand this because like I've never made a beauty product. You know what I mean? So I'm still trying to figure out, oh, oh, you have to go to like this manufacturer and like do this and do this. But I agree. And I have talked to brand founders that are like, they say it like this. It's almost like you go to a manufacturer, they have a little buffet of products and they say, okay, we predict this is going to be big. Like sometimes the trends are determined by what these manufacturers are like serving to all of these brands. And then all of these brands are coming out with similar products at the same time because they're all working with the same manufacturer. It's like, are the trends being driven by the people? Or are they being driven by like true innovation? Or is it just that some chemist made this bomb formula and was like, oh, I think this is going to do really well. And then everybody latched onto it. Yeah, no, I, I think you hit the nail on the head. I think that some brands don't realize is if they go to a manufacturer and they formulate something, but they don't negotiate for full ownership, which can be very expensive. Some of the founders I talked to said it's like 30 grand for to get someone to do a formula for you that you end up owning and can manufacture anywhere you want. So you get your like recipe which is very expensive for, you know, most brands. The funny thing is you'll have a manufacturer create a product for you. And if you don't necessarily get the ownership, it stays in their library. This is part of their business model, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's just not something that everyone necessarily knows. So like Jamie, Jamie Greenberg is such a good interview. She was like, yeah, I was like, you know, I get these products from these labs and I'll be like, wait a minute, is this, you know, like so-and-so product? And they're like, we can't tell you. And she's like, yeah. oh my gosh, because you know, they can't tell you, but it's easy to spot. I think when you're working on people's faces and dealing with every makeup product in the world, because you're a makeup artist, it's easy to kind of pick them out, but it's a funny world. Yeah. And like Jamie, like you said, being a makeup artist, she knows so many formulas by heart, just like on how they apply to the skin and things of that nature. So she's probably like, oh, th these are sisters or these are twins or, you know, whatever, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> whatever it is. But 
to Jamie's point, like she made the Bly lighter and that was like one of her first products. And I think in the story, she says that they didn't own that formula at first or there was one product that they put out and they learned their lesson where they're like, okay, we need to figure out how to own everything that we do. I think because we have such a saturated beauty market right now, I think the only thing that you have to stand on at this point are these formulas that are truly different and like truly innovative in a way and actually have a point of differentiation from everything else that is out there because there's so much clutter. So unless you, I mean, I, I don't know like what else there really is if you don't own your IP, which I mean, isn't that the story of everybody's life owning your own IP? It's like... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's funny. Like, I think that there's just... I mean, I've been saying this for years, though. I'm kind of like a Grinch about things sometimes, but it's like, there's too many products. There are too many products out there. It is oversaturated and the beauty industry continues to grow and continues to have these awesome projections. But it's like, there are 20,000 cream blushes. (laughs) There are 50,000 gazillion, not really. I'm being hyperbolic, but it's like, there's just so many products out there and they're all so similar. Just to kind of wrap this up, I do have to mention that these retailers are also very influential in like trying to get these brands to put out products that they see are starting to trend. You know, they're looking on their retail sites and seeing searches for mandelic acid or whatever, and then they're probably pushing it to them. Okay, you're one of our top selling brands. You need to have a mandelic acid product. And it's like, what if I'm a cosmetics brand? Like, where is that fitting into this? What are we doing there? I hear a lot about that from brand founders feeling like they are kind of getting not reprimanded, but they are being very strongly told that they need to provide certain products with certain ingredients or a certain type of product to meet up with these trends that they are starting to see. And it's like, how else would they be able to do that quickly and turn it around in time without it being private labeled? Yeah, you're so right. I hear that as well from founders, like the pressure for newness is really intense. Totally. Okay. Last story. So many good ones. Thank you for coming on. And (laughs) thank you. Oh my gosh. Telling us all about these. I do want to touch on this one. These are all from Glossy, by the way. So you can go on Glossy, get a subscription. One of my favorite subscriptions ever. And especially now that Lexi is there, I will be tuning in every week. So this is really interesting. The unseen Prop 65 legal turmoil driving beauty brands to shutter in 2023. I was shocked to read about this. So can you explain to people what Prop 65 is? Sure. Yeah. I was also shocked about this one because living in California, you see Prop 65 warnings and labels everywhere. There's one in my refrigerator. It says this refrigerator could cause birth defects and cancer. Yes. Like they're just everywhere. Like every time you walk into a parking structure, big Prop 65 sign warning you that there's chemicals known to the state of California that are floating around this parking garage and you should be warned. But it's not new. And that's why I was so surprised about how this is impacting the beauty industry. But basically, for just a really quick breakdown, Prop 65 is the California Safe Drinking Water and Toxic Enforcement Act of 1986. Just basically, it put together this monstrous list of chemicals that are known to the state of California to be connected with a variety of health issues. You know, when it came out in 1988, there were 235 chemicals on the list. Now there's 900 chemicals on the list. So basically, if you have a product, packaging, 
the secondary packaging, the wrap around it, the product itself. If there's one of these 900 chemicals on it, you have to warn consumers about the chemical on the package. And of course, beauty brands aren't doing this because putting a label on the back saying your eyeshadow, your bronzer might cause cancer is not great for marketing. Right. So <laughs> like, I understand why beauty brands have been ignoring this for the most part, but Basically, because California has too many people and too many things going on and everybody's really, really busy, the attorney general has turned this along with many other issues into the kind of thing where, quote unquote, citizen prosecutors are allowed to find brands that could potentially be breaking Prop 65 compliance and issue them warning letters that they're basically going to tell the attorney general and they're going to potentially sue. And all of this is public record. So I basically started digging around because this one beauty founder that I talked to, and to kind of go back really briefly, this story started out as trying to figure out why so many beauty brands are shuttering right now and yeah. why every single week it feels like a new beauty brand that looked like they were successful all of a sudden posts on Instagram, you know, we love our community and we're shutting down. And like, what's happening there? Like, what's going on? So I started trying to talk to all of these founders and eventually got one on the phone that closed her brand this summer. Like, I've reported on this brand in the past. We all love this brand. Like, I was really surprised. And she gets on the phone with me and she goes, listen, like, honestly, we closed because of a Prop 65 lawsuit. And the way that it's affecting the beauty industry like that is that titanium dioxide is on the, the Prop 65 list. Titanium dioxide is in sunscreens. It's approved for use in foods even. You can use it as a colorant. It's not necessarily one of those ingredients that we are like, oh my gosh, no, no PFOS, no, no PFOS, no, no phthalates, which are also on the list. But basically all of these brands that have titanium dioxide in powder formulas, technically that goes against Prop 65. So all of these citizen prosecutors are basically going after brands. And so I dug up all of the warning labels through the attorney general, and I saw there were hundreds of warning labels going out to brands. So we're talking about Smashbox, Victoria Beckham Beauty, Mob Beauty, RMS, Jones Road, Pat McGrath. It's like if there's a beauty brand in there that's selling something that's against Prop 65, these lawyers, these groups have figured it out and they are suing all of these different brands. So if you're a big brand, this might just be a line in your product and losses, you know, maybe, uh, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars, of course, to defend yourself or create a, you know, settle with these prosecutors. But if you're a baby brand, if you're an indie brand, this can just knock the wind out of you. And so it's a weird thing. But that's uh, one issue brands are coming up against right now. Wow, that is so crazy to me. I mean, I'm truly shocked by this, but also not surprised. I was speaking with, she's a brand founder and an esthetician based in New York. And she was saying that there's something similar happening, but it comes to like disability warnings or maybe not even disability, but ADA stuff. I don't know. I'm totally butchering this, y'all. No, no, no. I know, I know what you're talking about. So this also came up in my reporting. So a lot of people are also putting together these advocacy legal groups that go after brands for ADA compliance. So the Americans with Disability Act basically says that 
you know, sometimes if you go on a website or if you go on, or even like on social media, you'll see a caption that sort of gives like a breakdown of what the photo is. It'll be like woman standing in green dress, applying blush. And also the Americans with Disability Act, I'm not like an expert on this, but I know there's a lot of different things that brands have to comply with. You need to be able to have a consumer come onto your website and put it into more of like a simple mode where like the font gets a little bit bigger. There's more of a contrast behind some of the text. And that's just to make it easier for people who are differently abled and a lot of brands, I'm not sure if they don't know this, or I'm not sure if they don't have like maybe the means to like redo their site or to, you know, bring it up to code. But that's also a big issue, brands getting sued for not being compliant for ADA. There's a lot going on there. I mean, that's obviously, I think, different because I feel like if you are differently abled, that's a, that's something different than just not having the prop 65 warning. I mean, in my opinion, I don't know, maybe you think differently, but no, I think that like in California, most people don't necessarily know these things. And looking at the Prop 65 stuff, I was confused because it's like, how can, how can people like not know this? You know, it's like, and I think that they're just not like being messaged it. And it's interesting. And I also think that brands don't necessarily realize that like, if they're operating out of a different state or even a different country, or if they're manufacturing in a different country, or maybe they have nothing to do with California but they still have to comply with it if they sell in California at all. So it's like, if you sell on Amazon to someone who lives in California, if you sell on any of the big box stores, like you also have to comply with this or you could potentially get in trouble, which is not ideal. Lexi, this was so awesome. Thank you for coming on. Where can everybody find you and read your work? Sure. Yeah. Um, Glossy.co. I've been the West Coast correspondent for about a month now. Super excited. I'm super excited to be back in house. Freelance was great, but I love working with the team and so happy. So please check out Glossy.co for all my new work. And then on social too, Lexi Lebsack on Instagram is where I'm like the most prolific. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm avoiding TikTok. I'm too. I downloaded it once. I opened it up, looked at it, looked up four hours had passed and I was like wow that was wild you would actually be too powerful for TikTok it would be so good it would be so good if you got on and reported oh because there's so much misinformation there you would absolutely kill it on TikTok but I was gonna say I hope they you're thinking about doing a podcast with Glossy because I feel like you would be great I really want to yeah we, we definitely talked about it maybe for like a spring or summer of next year, obviously get through the holidays and, and wrap up and then shift gears a bit. But yeah, I definitely big, big plans um, to do some multimedia stuff back post pandemic. <laughs> Thank you everyone for listening this week. We will be back on Friday with another great guest interview. Make sure you subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Spotify so you don't miss any breaking beauty news or product reviews. And if you want to support us, be sure to follow us at Gloss Angeles Pod on all platforms and join our Facebook group. Plus, find every product we recommend on our website, glossangelespod.com, as well as links to the stories and news we report each week. You can follow us, your hosts, I'm Sarah Tan, that's S-A-R-A-T-A-N, on all social platforms. And I'm Kirby Johnson, K-I-R-B-I-E, on all social platforms.
Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.